These All About Him messages are given very careful consideration. Uh, And over the years, we've done many of the kind of obvious Christ-centered passages in Scripture, Colossians 1, Revelation 5, things like this. And uh, it's been a privilege to look at those with you and uh, to talk about Christ in this way. This year, we've been preaching through 1 Peter, and this series we've called Exile, because Peter is writing to a group of people that are living on the margins of society. Their faith, their beliefs are not accepted by the community that they live in. How do they endure the trials, the suffering, the losses that come from people's rejection? And that's kind of where 1 Peter goes. And basically, what Peter is saying to them is that their joy and satisfaction in Christ should be such that they can endure these trials indeed with joy because of what they know that they have in Christ, that these trials are a small price to pay for knowing Jesus. And we've learned so much from 1 Peter here, but I wonder if we've ever stopped and thought about Peter himself. Like, how does a guy come to write the kinds of things that he writes in Peter, especially a guy like Peter. Like if you think about, you know, three or four of the top ten flops and failures in all of the Bible, Peter solidly has at least three of them, right? He is perhaps the most famous fickle guy in the whole Bible, and yet he writes what he does, as we've been learning, in 1 Peter. How did Peter become Peter? That's where we're going with this All About Him message, first ever biographical All About Him message. We're taking a look at the life of Peter and to draw encouragement from a man famous for his failures, but in the end of his life, to be famous for living up to the name that Jesus gave him, Peter. So just to do a little introduction here about Peter, if you're new to Christianity, Uh, then you are probably new to this guy. If you read through the Gospels, the second most referred to person in all of the Gospels is Peter. So he's a very prominent person in the story of Jesus. And uh, we're going to get into why here in a moment. So let's talk about his name, okay? His name. We call him Peter. His mama called him Simon, okay? That was his given name, Simon. Sometimes he's known as Simon Peter, Jesus meets him, Andrew, his brother, brings him to him, and Jesus meets him and says, from this day forward, your name will be Peter. Now, this is a little bit, on the surface, a cruel joke by Jesus to call Peter, which means, by the way, rock. When you see the story, his flimsy character and all of the wishy-washy and all of that, to call a guy like that rock sounds like one of those sort of uh, recess nicknames that you hate, right? They get that name and they make fun of you. But Peter becomes the rock eventually and very dramatically. His vocation, he was by trade a fisherman. So this is a blue-collar guy. He is not sort of a white-collar businessman in Jerusalem. This is a guy that worked with his hands. He made a living with his hands. He lived in Bethsaida, is the name of the town, And uh, we have a map here, uh, which you can't see very well, but if you notice in the top of the map there, top of the Sea of Galilee, you see Bethsaida 
If you're going to be a fisherman, you better live by a body of water, don't you think? And uh, in, in Israel, you had two primary choices. You had the Sea of Galilee or what was known as the Dead Sea. Which would you choose if you were a fisherman? The Sea of Galilee or the Dead Sea? I think he chose wisely there, the Sea of Galilee. He was a fisherman. His family, we know that uh, he had a brother named Andrew who also was one of the 12 disciples. We also know that he had a wife and even his mother-in-law is mentioned in the story. If there's anything that Peter is known for, though, it is his hubris and his mouth. When you look at Peter, this is a guy that's got tremendous strengths. I mean, this is the guy that was a leader. He was the leader of the disciples. He uh, was the only disciple that got out of the boat to walk towards Jesus, walking on water briefly. He was the first to confess Jesus' true identity. He said, thou art the Christ, the Son of God. He was close to Jesus because Jesus wanted him close to him. So you look at Peter, this is a guy, there's a lot to admire in him. But at the same time, this is the man with tremendous inconsistencies in his life. He uh, had devastating weaknesses. He was arrogant, he was brash, he was impetuous, he was domineering. Some examples of this, who was the only disciple that refused to allow Jesus to wash his feet? Peter. Which disciple chose to rebuke the Son of God? Peter. Which disciple decided to say something really stupid during the Mount of Transfiguration? Peter. Which disciple threw himself overboard and swam to shore, leaving the other disciples to fend for the fish in the nets? Peter. Many other examples we could give of this. Peter, he's just always kind of saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing. And uh, all of these are part of what I'm sharing with you today. There's really two Peters in the story. And I have a little visual just to help here. There is the Peter who is all about him, or maybe to say all about himself. There's that Peter. And then there is the other Peter that is all about him, big H, big I, big M. And to know how he went from being this guy to being this guy will be an encouragement to all of us and I hope continue to pull us from being a church that is about ourselves to a church that is increasingly about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where we're going today. So let's start off by talking about the little him Peter. All about him, if you want to do it that way. All about him. And there, again, there's so much about Peter in the Gospels. I just want to look uh, at one example that summarizes all that was wrong with Peter and his sort of worldview and selfishness. And this moment is in the upper room. It's the, it's the week that Jesus has been, is, is Passion Week. This is literally hours before Jesus is going to be arrested and tried and beaten and crucified uh, and die. We are within 24 hours of the death of Jesus. And he is in the upper room with his disciples. He's celebrating the Passover. And there's so much that happened in that upper room. Jesus washes the, the feet of the disciples uh, you have the upper room discourse, John 13 and following, if you want to read that later. Um, you know, Judas is identified and runs out of the room. Lots of things happened in this upper room. One of the things that happened is 
uh, caught for us in Matthew 26. And here's what Jesus says to the disciples. He says, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Okay, so Jesus is prophesying about what is about to happen. He, the shepherd of the disciples, is about to be struck down. He is about to be killed. He even prophesizes his resurrection, and then I will be raised again. So Jesus is talking about the two most important moments in all of human history. Like, that's as big as it gets. Notice what Peter has to say about the matter. Verse 33, Peter answered, Though all fall away because of you, I never will. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter says to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. So Peter here, he's sort of the ringleader of the very self-confident disciples. And I want you to notice a few things that Peter decides this is a great moment to do. Number one, self-comparison. He says, though all fall away from you, I, Peter, never will. Do you hear in his words, it's just dripping with self-confidence and pride and such a high view of self here from Peter. Drawing the comparison, of course, whenever you have a high view of self, you always love to compare yourself to others, favorably, I might add. And so Peter, you can almost see him with his hand. He says to Jesus, sort of sweeping around the table, I don't know if Da Vinci's painting is out, what looked or whatever, but he sweeps around the table and says, though all these other schmoes may fail you, I, Peter, I never will. And you can hear in him, just again, that sort of hubris. I can hear him sort of thinking in his mind, you can count on me, Jesus, you can count on me, maybe not these other guys. Philip, he's flakier than a Christmas snow. Thomas, I doubt it. John, he's weak, he's weak. But I, Peter, I am better than all the rest. I am more courageous than all the rest. I am the man at this table. You can count on me. I will never leave you. Peter's problem was, of course, pride. And we all struggle with pride. Peter just expressed it so obnoxiously. Can you imagine being one of the other disciples there hearing Peter talking about how much better he is than everybody else? Whenever we compare our strengths to other people's weaknesses, we can know that pride is the source. Self-comparison. Comparison. Notice, secondly, self-promotion. I, 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 Peter is talking about himself. I will never fall away. What is the reference point for Peter? It's Peter, isn't it? Here's Jesus. He's just talked about how he's going to die. I'm the shepherd. I'm going to be struck down. I am going to be resurrected from the dead. Does Peter want to let Jesus' death be the reference point for this conversation? No, no, enough about you, Jesus, enough about you. Let's talk about my amazing commitment to you. Enough about you dying, enough, we don't want to hear anymore. Let's talk about my willingness to die. Enough about your death, let's talk about my willing death. 
It's about me, me, me. Peter, do you hear it? He is the reference point. His amazing courage. If all, if, if I must die for you, I am willing to do it, he says. Self-promotion. Third is self-determination. And quickly, I just want to tell the story of Peter from this moment. So you have the upper room moment. Jesus uh, establishes the Lord's Supper, does the teaching that we see in the upper room discourse. Judas is identified. He goes running out of the, of the place. They sing a hymn, and the text says that they go to the Garden of Gethsemane. This was a favorite prayer spot for Jesus. Judas knew it as well. They go there. He takes Peter, James, and John with him a little bit distance from the other disciples. He begins to pray. And in that moment, Jesus is grappling with what he knows that the Father's will is for him to bear the guilt for the sins of the world. He, in that moment, is contemplating that cup, as he calls it, uh, being the will of the Father. It's a decisive moment in Jesus' life. What are the disciples doing as he is in agony? Sleeping, right? They're sleeping. They're tired. That moment, all of a sudden, there is a stirring there is noise and the disciples wake up and Jesus is there and they see a rabble of Roman soldiers and of Jewish leaders and at the head of the whole thing is the very disciple Judas who comes up to Jesus and kisses him as an identification for who Jesus is it's dark it's not like there's street lights or anything Judas identifies Jesus with a kiss and now the Roman soldiers surge forward to grab Jesus We pick up the story now with Peter's response to this moment. And uh, John 18 tells us this. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it. Now remember, what was his vocation? He was a fisherman, okay? This is on display now. Drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. He has bad aim, doesn't he? If you have a sword and there's a Roman cohort attacking and the best you can do is cut off an ear, you're in trouble, aren't you? So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? What was wrong with what Peter did here? It wasn't that he wanted to do something necessarily, What was wrong here is that he wanted to take matters into his own hands. He has done this before. You remember when uh, there's the Mount of Transfiguration and there's uh, Moses and Elijah and Jesus and Peter there says, let's build three temples to you on the top of the mountain here. And the text says he had no idea what he was saying. You hear in Peter there, he, he wants to take matters into his own hands. You remember when, uh, when, 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 when Peter says that this whole, he goes to Jesus and says, hey, all this talk about dying and all of that, enough, enough, we don't want to hear any more about that, that can't be the will of the Father. What does Jesus respond with? What does he say to Peter? Get behind me, Peter? No, what does he say? Get behind me, Satan. He identified that Satan was using Peter as his mouthpiece. And what did Satan himself tempt Jesus to do in the temptation? He showed him the kingdoms of the world and said, I will give all of these to you if you will what? Bow down to me. 
What was Satan offering and really Peter doing here? It was a kingdom without a cross. It was a a way to rule and have authority without suffering and without dying. And Jesus saw that in Peter. And in this moment, here now, Jesus, about to fulfill the will of the Father, willingly allowing himself to be arrested, Peter saying, this is not What ought to happen? I'm going to take matters into my own hands, draws the sword, and is prepared to try to control the situation. He didn't want Jesus dying. He didn't want Jesus arrested. He didn't want Jesus to fulfill the will of the Father. Once again, Peter, trying to be the man, being all about him and his purpose and his what he thinks is right and all the rest so let's just pause here for a moment and uh, ask the question can you relate to Peter can you relate to Peter in your life to think about what is your reference point for your life what's the starting point who do you think about who are you all about whose plan and purpose are you really trying to accomplish, or to ask this question, who are we trying to glorify, really? Down in the crevices of our hearts, who are we all about? Are we not all too often like this Peter right here? I think that we are. And that's why Peter is such a great example. We can relate to this guy, like I see myself in him. And yet here today we're saying, okay, this is old Peter right here, but this is the Peter that we see later in the story. How did this Peter become this Peter? And the answer to that is Peter had a shattering moment in his life that God sovereignly brought him to that made all of the difference here. And we have the story in Matthew 26. Okay, so what happens is he strikes off the ear of the high priest. Jesus rebukes him. I always wonder about this moment, by the way. If you're part of the Roman soldiers, you see a guy's hand cut off, your, and, and he, or hand, ear cut off, and he grabs the ear and he just, he, put, you know, oh, there you go, it's healed. Because he heals him right there on the spot. Are you not standing there going, maybe we shouldn't be arresting this guy? <laughs> like, I don't get that. But they do. They arrest him. Jesus is taken away. The disciples run, but Peter and John turn back and follow Jesus to the courtyard where he is being interrogated by the Jewish leadership. And so we pick up the story now. Uh, There in the courtyard, Jesus is in the house. He is being interrogated. Peter is outside, verse 69, Matthew 26. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with, the G, uh, with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him and said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Remember, he was a Galilean. He spoke a little bit differently. They heard that accent. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. 
You know, friends, my dear church, one of the graces that God gives to us when we are living over here is that he oftentimes allows us to come to the end of ourselves. He allows that starting point of myself to lead to its inevitable conclusion. And in life, in this broken world, there is inevitably a conclusion that we come to, we have to come to, that this whole universe is not about me. Now that might be for you a trial that God brings into your life. That idol that you have, whether it be money or success or whatever it is, all of a sudden that idol is shattered when you lose your business or the stock market plunges like it did the last week or two. And all of a sudden, I read a guy who jumped off a building, okay, jumped off a building, because the stock market went down. What idol was he worshiping at? Or you're in the doctor's office and all of a sudden the doctor says, I've got really bad news. And you take that little deep breath like, oh, what's he about to say? Or a thousand other things that happens in life as pain and suffering comes into our life and forces us to have a paradigm shift. Live for myself, live for my health, glory, whatever it is, but all of a sudden I realize, and it might be on my deathbed, I realize that this is all for naught. There is nothing in me here. I am weak. I am frail. I am mortal. My life will not last. To ask the question right here, who here, or or let me say it this way, where are all of us in a hundred years? Where are we? We are dead in the ground. Now that moment might be like for us, oh wait, that's, uh, you know, I'm not going to think about that. But what does that do for us? What does the doctor saying what he does to us do for us? Or the stock market going down, or me losing my job, or my son rebelling, or whatever it is. It shows me what is always true. And what is always true is that this whole thing is not about me. And I can try to live that way as long as I can, but eventually life gets us. And we realize, wait a second, I am not the center of the universe. And it causes us to look for a center. Look for something or somebody to put my hope and my trust and to live for. When do people most often come to faith in Jesus? Is it when the stock market goes up 500 points or it goes down 2,000? When you get a clean bill of health or the doctor has something else to say? We turn to Jesus in our pain because it is our pain that tells us the truth about ourselves, And we look for something, somebody to live for. And this is Peter's moment here. I was calling it, it's all about him moment when all of a sudden he realizes that he is not the center he went out and wept bitterly Peter's hubris is shattered on the rocks of his own ambition and he doesn't realize he realizes how small he is okay he realizes how small he is how do we become all about him we're not naturally this way are we We're all naturally this way. My daughter, yesterday, I was in charge of dinner. Raisins, raisins, raisins. Like, really? Okay. A thousand times raisins? 
We are born about our own desires. We want but what we want. And it is only by the grace of God that we become somebody that lives over here. Okay? And that is the truth. And that is what Peter experienced. Doctrinally, we call it regeneration. We are born dead. We're born selfish. We're born living for us. But then we put our faith in Jesus. We come to realize who he is and that he died on the cross for my sins and he's resurrected conquering death. And I, I say, you know what? That's true and I believe it and my hope is in him. And the Bible says that we become a new person. We're, we're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Now I am living by a whole different paradigm. Spiritually, I am alive and the perspective of my life is constantly being pulled off of me and I'm trying desperately to live to the glory of Jesus. Morally, relationally, emotionally, spiritually, to live for the glory of Jesus. But again, it takes often pain over here to get us over here. And maybe you're there right now. Maybe you're like, man, this is sounding very similar to my life story. You've got something going on right now in your life that is causing you to realize that you are not sufficient, that it's not about you. Say, like, God, why would you do this? What good could it possibly come? Imagine Peter while he's weeping bitterly, if you could interview him. Hey, Peter, how's it feel? Isn't this awesome? He's like, this is not awesome. You're like, no, it's going to turn out great. I don't know that. I'm just living my life. No, you're going to become amazing. You're like the head of the apostles. You write books of the Bible. He's like, all I know is that I am a failure. I have failed the Lord Jesus. Peter ran. He wept. He wept bitterly. And here's the bio of the story of Peter. During these darkest hours of Jesus' earthly ministry. He is, uh, goes before Pilate. He is scourged. He carries his cross. Where is Peter during all of that? He is nowhere in the story. Nowhere in the story. He carries his cross to Golgotha. He is crucified there. Where's Peter during the crucifixion? Nowhere to be mentioned. We know John was there. We know Mary Magdalene was there. We know his mother Mary was there and other disciples were there. Peter is nowhere to be found. Where's Peter during the burial? Nowhere. We know Joseph Arimathea was there. We know Nicodemus was there. We know Mary Magdalene was there. Where's Peter? He's not there. Nowhere mentioned on Saturday while Jesus is in the grave. The next time Peter is mentioned is Sunday. The disciples have gathered in the upper room. Peter has shown up there at least. And here now we have the most wonderfully painful and glorious moment in Peter's life. And I'm not going to read the text for this, but they are there in the upper room, and all of a sudden, and remember, Mary, uh, Mary Magdalene came and said they've stole the body. Peter and John rush out to the tomb. They look in. There's nothing there. They walk away wondering what could this mean. They go back into the upper room, and all of a sudden, with closed doors, suddenly, bam, Jesus is standing right in front of them. <gasps> you know? And they're, of course, going, is it real? Is it true? Is it a ghost? What's going on here? And Jesus says, here, come up and touch me. See that I am real. Give me something to eat. You got something to eat? Let me chew that. You can know that I am physically here before you. And I believe for Peter in that moment, that was the moment. 
the, 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 the courtyard was the pain. The upper room was the healing. And in that moment, he realized from this point on, enough of Peter, enough of living for me. I want to live for the one who was resurrected from the dead. And you want to talk about a change in somebody's life. I mean, from this point on in Peter's story, it's nothing short of amazing. Just to sketch it for you, Peter preaches the very first sermon in Acts chapter 2. Doesn't mention himself. That's quite an accomplishment for a guy like Peter. No mention of himself. All of it, Jesus. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You get to Acts 5. He faces down the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the political leadership of the day. These people were powerful. They were very mad at the apostles for what they were saying. And Peter stands before him and he says, we must obey God rather than man. This is the guy who the girl came to and said, weren't you with Jesus? And he wilted like a flower before the little teenage girl. Now, standing with the centrality of Jesus in his heart, courage flows from him. We must obey God rather than man. Love that moment. It's awesome. We find in Acts 5 that they are beaten. And what is their response? Joy. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And then we find Peter writing letters to, we call it 1 Peter and 2 Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and in these letters, there is no mention of his own importance. Peter gets to write letters, doesn't talk about himself. That's a dramatic change, isn't it? Instead, he writes this, and we've already studied this in our series, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, What's the purpose? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And I believe this is a kind of purpose statement for Peter's life. You think back to that courtyard. It was dark for a number of reasons. It was dark in Peter's heart. And you go to the upper room and all of a sudden there is Jesus standing there resurrected from the dead. That was for Peter, one was darkness, the other was light. And to say, my purpose from this point forward is to proclaim the excellencies of him. Not him, him. My whole goal is this. One commentator, the cross which brings Peter to, an end, to the end of himself is the cross that raises him up to God. And his purpose. In that moment of self disillusionment, Simon, the inadequate man of sand, becomes Peter, the rock, who is strong and dependable, precisely because he has learned to depend utterly on Christ. For us, as for Peter, failure need not be final. Do you hear that? Need not be final. As we're talking here, maybe you're, you're going like, man, the. I sound a lot more like this Peter right here. You're, you're tempted to leave here discouraged. Like, I'm the failure, man. And to not realize that Peter became Peter, that our failures, and don't we all fail the Lord? What's it take to get an amen in the service, right? Okay. 
You're all like, no, I'm better than everybody else. We all fail the Lord, don't we? And yet these failures, big and small, do not have to define us. They are not final for us. And we see the Lord Jesus coming to Peter, and this is such a wonderful moment in the story. John 21, after the resurrection, they go to Galilee. Jesus meets them on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And John 21 tells us this. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he's not saying, do you love me more than you love the other disciples? He's asking, is the quality of your love for me more than the quality that the other disciples love me? In other words, Peter, do you want to do some more comparing? And what is his response? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He refuses to compare himself to the other disciples. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. How many times did he deny Jesus? How many times did Jesus reaffirm him? Three times. Reestablishing him, recalling him to ministry, to leading the disciples. But really that bottom line, I think, is the bottom line. It was the bottom line for Peter. It's what Jesus, Jesus doesn't ask him, hey, have you put away your sword? How about that sword? You know, he doesn't go there. He goes for the heart. In your heart, Peter, do you love me? And that question from Jesus spans the centuries into this room right now. And to ask the question, Bethel Church or Bethelonian, do you love him? Now, do we have our doctrine right? We got our doctrine right, I would think. I think we get our doctrinal statement out here. Okay, what do we believe about Jesus, son of God, son of man, you know, fully God, fully man, incarnate, born of a virgin, uh, died as a substitute, atoning work on our behalf, resurrected from the dead, victory over death, in heaven at the right hand. Of, yeah, we, we got our doctrine right. Yeah, we got our doctrine right. Hey, we're the church that does this all about him. We're better than all the other churches. We're better than all the other churches. Who does that sound like? Okay. Why? Because we're, we're, we're all about him. That's right. Once a year, we even have a sermon on it. That's how amazing we are. So what? The issue is here. Do we love him? And is that love expressed in my life in a way that shows that I am not the reference point for my life, that I am living for him? I, I want to magnify him and the way that I work and the way that I parent and the way that I friend and neighbor and all. I, I, want, I, want, I want him to be magnified. As long as that happens, I'm good with it. He must increase, I must decrease. I'm good with it because I love him. And this Peter, this crazy Peter writes, and we studied this as well in 1 Peter 1.8, though you have not seen him, you love him. 
Though you do not see him, now you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. What is God doing in this world? He is taking naturally born selfish sinners all about ourselves and is giving us the immense privilege of knowing him through his son and living our life for the glory of the only one who deserves it. This change is not only for the glory of God, but it is for our joy. Living this way does what to us? It leads us to the end of ourselves. It's a path to depression and all the things that go on when I'm living for me. But when I am living to the glory of God and living for the glory of Jesus and my heart and my affections are on things above as Colossians calls, now my life is not about me. Now our church is not about us. That's the thing to realize we're trying to do here is we don't, we don't want to market ourselves as an end to all things. Bethel Church is not the end of all things. It is a means to an end. It is a means to an end. The end is the glory of Jesus and our church functioning, loving, ministering, relating, serving, worshiping in a way that this is happening. And that's why 18 years ago, when I gave my first sermon in this church, I talked about this right here. And all these years, talking about this, talking about this, talking about this. It's the only way to be a church, I think. It's to not be about ourselves, but to be about Christ. I believe the glory of Christ will inspire our young people to live radically in their schools for Jesus. And all of our why wait and don't do drugs and blah, 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 won't do it. But the life and the example and the glory of Christ will. I believe the glory of Christ will inspire the adults in our church to orient everything in their life to the glory of Jesus in a way that all our moralism and all our, hey, this is helpful, you'll be happier, blah, 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 won't do it. But the life and the example of Jesus will. And over the years, I have seen fads come and go in church ministry. I've probably, there's probably been five or six significant bandwagons that have come along, and I've seen it. People jump on that bandwagon. They say, this is what it's all about. This is what it's all about. And then it fades, and the next one comes. And that bandwagon, everyone's all about that. And that one fades, and the next one comes. I refuse to get on a bandwagon. I do. You ask the staff. Frustrates them sometimes, right? What about this? What about this? I'm like, hey, let's just stay here. This is where I want to lead our church, is right here. And take any good idea we can, but this is, the, this is the goal right here. And I hope you're with me with that. I remember, I remember uh, some years ago I was on a tour. I had a wonderful privilege to go on a tour and see some things. And we were, we were in Rome. And uh, we went to St. Peter's Basilica. You're probably familiar with St. Peter's Basilica. It's on TV a lot. And um, yeah, there's a picture of uh, me in front of St. Peter's Basilica. It is the largest church building in the world. And I'm here to tell you, it is breathtakingly big. Maybe some of you had the privilege to walk in that place. It's just overwhelmingly 
huge. It's big on the outside, it's even bigger on the inside. And uh, this is St. Peter's Basilica. So this is a church named after Peter. And I have to think that this Peter would love it. In fact, he might think it's not big enough. Is this all the better you could do for St. Peter's Basilica? You know, he would love it. Here was my thought as I was in there, was how much I think Peter would hate St. Peter's Basilica. An enormous building in his honor. In fact, if you look at this picture, you'll notice along the top there, um, it's in Latin, and I had to look this up because my Latin is not only rusty, it's non-existent. So (laughs) I had to look this up. But engraved along the top of that church for centuries now is this inscription in English, in honor of the Prince of the Apostles. And I just say, Bethel, let's make sure that we are a fellowship of believers whose hearts have the inscription, in honor of the Prince of Peace, in honor of the Lord of Lords, in honor of the King of Glory, in honor of incarnate God, in honor of Jesus Christ our Lord and our Savior, because at Bethel we want to keep it all about Him. Let's endeavor to do that this year, another year, all about Him. Would you join me for prayer, please? Heavenly Father, God, I just lead this prayer, but I do so knowing that the pastor of the church endeavoring to be all about him is all too often all about me. And these things that we're talking about here, there, there isn't anyone here that doesn't feel the draw back to the old ways of thinking and living, the emptiness of our former life, which our natural sinful selves continues to delight in. Lord, I pray that you would manifest your glory in our church by sanctifying our congregation and increasingly helping us to realize the joy and the wonder of not living for ourselves, but living for the only one worthy of it. God, I pray that this would shape our relationships as we apply the gospel to one another. I pray that it would shape the decisions of uh, leadership as we want to make decisions that further your fame in Northwest Indiana. I pray that you would allow this year, all of us, with one heart, to live and love in a way that lifts high Jesus in this community which so desperately is searching for something to live for. May they see it in us, and Jesus, may you be pleased in us, and may you be honored in all things, we pray.